Let's pray. Gracious God, as we come before this challenging passage, we ask you to speak to us by your spirit. We thank you that uh, your burden is light and your yoke is easy. Comfort us, convict us, whatever you would say to us in this time, we pray that you would do. In Jesus' name, amen. There is an outline to what I want to say on page five of your handout, and it will be a guide for you and also for me. And I have titled our passage this afternoon, The Sorry State of a Life That Does Not Match Up to One's Profession of Loyalty to God. The sorry state of a life that does not match up to one's profession of loyalty to God. Those of you who have been watching the events in Ukraine, and even those of you who have only been watching very occasionally, have heard many times that the counteroffensive is soon to begin when Russia will, or when the Ukraine will strike back at Russia. And there's great anticipation about that. Well, that's about as far as the analogy goes. But here in Matthew, Jesus uh, takes the gloves off, as it were, and he launches, um, I think, what could fairly be called a righteous tirade against the Jewish opponents who have been conspiring against him. And so our text this afternoon is more challenging than many times. We have to see God's grace only indirectly as we read between the lines, as it were. But it is God's word to us. And as the third title above uh, the text for today says on your handout, on the scripture page, readers should be asking what these false scribes teach us about what it means to be students of Jesus. There's much here for us to ponder. Let me begin with a story. When I was in seminary many moons ago, I was invited by uh, a prominent church family in my home to come for dinner. And I was invited to the Owl's Nest, which is probably the most expensive restaurant in Calgary. And I was picked up in what was called the Lexus. We will come and pick you up in the Lexus. We went for dinner, which was absolutely lovely. And during the course of dinner, uh, the, um, the woman of the household ordered something for dessert that had alcohol in it. And this led to a discussion. She thought that consuming something that had alcohol in it was a bad testimony. And so we spent a long time talking about the offense that she had caused by ordering dessert. Because what if the waiter knew that there was alcohol in that dessert and knew that she was a Christian? This would compromise her testimony. Well, the conversation went on similarly like that, and it even continued as we left the restaurant to go back into the Lexus. We continued to talk about the offense of the Tia Maria in the dessert as we stepped over a street person who asked us for money. And as we rode home in the Lexus, 
the man of the household noticed that I was silent and said, you know, for a seminarian, you haven't really contributed much to our discussion of what we've been talking about. And I wonder why that is so. And because I had been a guest for dinner, I didn't want to be too offensive, but I thought that if I was perhaps elusive enough that maybe I could get away with saying what I wanted to say without causing too much offense. And I said, well, the kinds of things that we're talking about are the very reason why the Jewish Talmud is as voluminous as it is. Uh, people who like to follow God talk about these things a lot. I like that illustration because it's an illustration about Christians and not about Jews. Uh, it would be um, a mistake to uh, take this passage, which is clearly a tirade against the Jewish opponents of Jesus, and to turn it into some kind of a tirade against uh, the Jewish people. Let's tackle that head on, because this passage actually um, is a tirade. And I can't help but think that some of you might have been um, troubled by Jesus' comment over and over again, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. The Pharisees are, in fact, the heirs of contemporary Jewish tradition. Um, much Jewish tradition owes itself to the teaching of the Pharisees. And this is often thought to be an anti-Semitic polemic. And before we go into the text, I just want to address that issue, if we can. First of all, it's clear in Matthew's Gospel, if you compare it to Luke's, that Matthew has, um, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, compiled various sayings of Jesus and has brought them together in what might not have been originally a full speech of Jesus. The sayings are those of Jesus, but they have perhaps been brought together into one speech in order to create a literary climax in the Gospel of Matthew. And so this tirade may not actually have been on the lips of Jesus, as it were, but it is the way in which the Holy Spirit wants us to hear this message. So we're getting a compressed, condensed, intense criticism of the Jewish people. Secondly, it's a convention of Jewish people to argue this way. I remember many years ago hearing a lecture by Andrew Lincoln, uh, who was a professor of New Testament here, I think it was his inaugural address at Wycliffe College, where he argued that it's characteristic of Jews when they dialogue with one another to kind of take off the gloves and to go at it. And there's no, there's, there's no, not the kind of harm and offense that, that we see, especially as polite Canadians. Um, I've often noticed how immediately I and others get nervous whenever there's a difference of opinion. We'll try to find the middle ground or try to change the subject. But here, seven times over in his woes, Jesus says, you're toast, as it were. That's what woe could be translated in effect. And Jesus is here taking the role of an Old Testament prophet who is mounting a tirade against those he is opposed to and says, you've got it wrong. So this is not some kind of a Christian tirade against Jews. It is customary of the way in which Jews argue and dialogue back and forth. Christianity began as a Jewish movement. Christianity began as a Jewish sect, as it were. So uh, we need not uh, bear the criticism, at least in this case, that we are um, being anti-Semitic. This is an intra-Semitic, potent conversation. 
So I hope that provides some kind of a context for our passage today. I want you to turn to page five, if you would, and look at um, what I want to say a little bit more about the context. The context of chapter 23. Today we come to the beginning of the fifth of five speeches of Moses. Did I say Moses? An understandable slip. Five speeches of the new Moses, Jesus, in Matthew. Matthew's uh, book is on page six under chart B. I'm jumping a little bit ahead of myself. If you look at chart B on page six, the five speeches were the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five to seven, the Sending of the Twelve, Matthew chapter 10, Kingdom Parables, Matthew 13, Community Discourse, Matthew 18, and now finally, and fifthly, a long prophetic discourse. One of the other things that we've seen, and we've just moved from one to the other, is a move from narrative material to speech. Last week, we were in the midst of narrative, and for the next few weeks, we're going to be in the midst of speech. And they overlap one another in precisely the same way that you find in the five books of Moses, where you have legislative material and then narrative. And they are uh, woven together, and one speaks to the other. Notice the thoroughly Jewish nature of this book, by the way, in which one scholar has characterized these five speeches. The Sermon on the Mount by the new Moses. The Sending of the Twelve by the new Joshua. Kingdom Parables by the new Solomon. Community Discourse by the new Elisha. And Prophetic Discourse, Matthew chapters 23 to 25, under the title of the new Jeremiah. Now, why the new Jeremiah? Well, there are two chapters in Jeremiah's prophecy where he gives a temple sermon. And as best as can be inferred from the context of our passage, Jesus is still in the temple. And he's delivering a sermon against his opponents in the temple. So that's part of its context, and I've gone to two before one. It's place at the start of the fifth speech of the book. It's kind of the equivalent to the book of Deuteronomy, although there's no direct correspondence between any of the speeches and any of the books in the Pentateuch. But now it's placed in 21 to 25, and for that I want to refer us. Well, let me read the quote on page five first, and we'll see how it plays out in the chart. One writer has put it, from the debate and parables of chapters 21 to 22, where we have just been, we now moved to direct attack, counteroffensive, if you will, exposing ruthlessly the failings of the religious leaders which have been emerging in the preceding chapters. This chapter, chapter 23, prepares for chapters 24 and 25, which will speak of judgment to come on the nations. It does so, that is chapter 23, by showing the rottenness of the heart of official Judaism. Verses 37 to 39, which we'll look at next week, will link the two discourses together. The discourse of chastisement and judgment and the discourse which speaks about the destruction of the temple, which in Old Testament terms went side by side, if you remember, with exile. Look at chart A on page six, if you will. One scholar, I think, has aptly um, shown 
that in a way, Matthew follows the Old Testament. And in the different sections of Matthew, you can see um, the history of Israel unfolding. And so I have shown us this before, I think, but I just want to draw our attention to the latter part of it, where in 1417, we had divided reactions, which he takes to be representative of the divided kingdom, the speeches of Elijah and Elisha. And then in 18 to 20, the church's instruction having to do with the prophet's hope and establishing a new community. And now in 21 to 25, it's the clash of kingdoms. The discourse that we've seen when people try to trap Jesus and he responds and he outwits them. There's a competition going on. There's a contest going on. And we saw last week at the end of the narrative that Jesus showed himself to have silenced the others. He had put his enemies, to use chess terms, in a checkmate. And after that checkmate, he says, oh, I have a thought. I have a question about you, or for you, about Psalm 110. If David's son is merely the son of David, then why does David in Psalm 110 say, my Lord said to him, my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at his, at his footstool. In other words, the son of David is the son of David, but also Lord. And at this point, Jesus uh, pulls off the gloves, as it were, uh, or he puts on the boxing gloves, if, if, if it were, if you want to use that analogy. There's not much grace in this text. And I think it's a reminder that there is a time when that has passed. The Jews have determined that they want to kill him. And Jesus knows that. And he's determined to be killed in order to save us from our sins. And so Jesus takes on the role of a prophet, and he speaks out against hypocrisy and injustice and levels his guns directly at the scribes and the Pharisees. But as I said in my introduction, Christians could do the same thing. We can be very good at that. And so as we look at our text, I want us to think on these terms. So back to the outline, if you will. Looking at our passage, it comes under different sections. There's an introduction to Jesus' prophetic condemnation of his opponent's hypocrisy. And here I'm convinced that Jesus is, uh, and Matthew, as it were, Matthew knows that Jesus said this to Jewish opponents, but he also knows that he's writing to a church. And this chapter 23 is doing double duty. In one sense, it's speaking to us about our own hypocrisy. But in another sense, Matthew is still using Jesus' words to address Jews who are still interested in the old synagogue ways. And so chapter 23, as much as it speaks to us indirectly, contains many things that pertain only to the Jewish opponents of Jesus. So that's why when it comes to application, you'll see that the primary application that I suggest has to do with Jewish Christian dialogue. This is Christianity engaging Judaism, even in the time of Matthew's writing. And it's incredibly Jewish. That's why in verse 2, Jesus says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in the chair of Moses. Everything, therefore, which they say to you, do and observe. Jesus is offering kind of a winsome introduction to his criticism. And in a sense, he's affirming the oral tradition that the Jews were following, what they call the halakha, or the legal uh, testimony that they follow. You remember I said once that they have the following, they follow the Torah, the written Torah, but they also have a whole bunch of oral 
laws that are in tandem with that Torah. And they believe in the authority of both. And so here Jesus um, grants them to do that. To the extent that it follows the instruction of Moses, go ahead and do it. And so we find in, a, we find in verses uh, 3 to 7 um, a kind of a summary. Do not do their works, for they do not do what they say. Anybody here do everything they say? Everybody, anybody here, yeah, do everything that they say? How well do we walk the talk? Parents inevitably will say, do, do, do what I'm saying, not necessarily what I, what I do. And so I think that there's a way in which each of us can be aware of the fact that we too are guilty of these things. But in the case of the Jews, Jesus accuses them of putting heavy burdens and placing them on the shoulders of men. And this refers to the kind of laws that they have that were well motivated, but it was kind of uh, wrongly oriented. They thought that if they could just cover all of the bases horizontally, that they would be honoring God. But Jesus goes and he uh, wants to dig under them and notices that there are inconsistencies and that in the midst of covering all of the bases, they're in fact standing on bases under which are maggots and worms and dirt. We've heard this before in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is echoed here, but in a more Jewish flavor. Jesus says they're not willing to lift a finger to alleviate the heavy burdens that they put on other people. They're loading people with burdens, but the burdens aren't salvific, and therefore people are just dying under the weight of all this stuff that they have to do. Contrast that, my friends, with what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This could be understood as a commentary on our culture, where most people in our world today want to say that the way to please God is by doing more good than bad. And when we come to the end of the day, God will look and say, well, you tried pretty well. You did more good than bad, so okay. But how do you know? How much good is good enough? What do you have to do in order to win God's favor? Jesus' answer is zero. I've done it all for you. When I died on the cross, I took the burden of your sins upon myself. And all you need to do is accept it as a gift. I don't have to do anything but accept it? That's right. Accept salvation as a gift. That is the way into the Christian life. And the things that we do in order to honor Christ in the wake of that are the burden that is light and the yoke that is easy. Jesus then seems to break out in verses 8 to 12 to give us some advice on calling each other titles. And he says to us and to the Jewish audience, you're not to be called rabbi or father or teacher. The main reason being that there's only one who is your teacher. There's only one who's your father. There's only one who is your rabbi, and that is Jesus himself. 
And here Jesus is invoking Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which was the creedal statement of the Jewish people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And Jesus appends to that, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So notice that Jesus is calling the, the teacher that they should have one, which is why I put it in capitals. Jesus is making an implicit claim to being God here. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your heavenly father. Do not be called teachers, for your teacher is one, the Christ. This is what Jesus said in the last, uh, at the end of the last paragraph before chapter 23. And then he reminds us that the greatest of you shall be your servant, and whoever will exalt himself shall be humbled, and whoever will humble himself shall be exalted. Many of the teachings that Jesus has given before. Yes, these teachings have been given before. Why? The Gospel of Matthew is an instruction manual. It's designing to teach us the way of the Christian life. So as you sit here this morning and are thinking, well, now we're going through the sermon time. Yep, is it 10, 15 minutes and it'll be over and we'll go on to communion and then we can have pizza? That's not exactly the way to look at it. This is more like, I don't know, boot camp or Bible college or training ground or something. That's what Matthew has, has in mind. He wants us to be absorbed with the teachings of Jesus. And the purpose of the sermon, of course, is not to fill 20 minutes, it's not to entertain, but it's to teach the teachings of Jesus, what he said and what he does. And it comes up over and over again throughout the gospel, both in his teachings and in what he does. This is an instruction manual. How are you doing? How am I doing? Jesus here draws our attention primarily to the issue of hypocrisy. Well, then in his seven woes, Jesus begins with a general one. And he says in verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor do you grant admission to those who are entering. He's saying your way of covering the bases, as well motivated as it is, is missing the point. And all the rest is an illustration of that. In the second of the woes, Jesus, I think, speaks of something to which we can relate. Many uh, Jewish people uh, today, uh, if you go to Israel, there are certain Jewish people who are very much like evangelicals. They, they want to talk to you about God, and they want you to become Jewish. And Jesus says, you hypocrites, you can travel around the world trying to find a convert for yourselves, and when you find a convert, you turn him into as much of a hypocrite. There are ways in which we can do the same thing in our own Christian world. Evangelism is not the problem, but the question is, what is the substance of our discipleship? And then in the third and the fourth and the fifth woes, Jesus focuses on um, practices that were specifically Jewish. And I don't want to go into them in detail because I'm convinced that in the case of the uh, woe against the blind guides about swearing, for example, that here Jesus is addressing specific Jewish concerns. Jesus has already told us what he wants us to do in terms of oaths in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is we're not to take them. Our yes is to be yes, and our no is to be no. And if you care to look at the notes, you'll see that Jesus is showing himself to be beating the rabbis at their own game. I mean, he knows the dynamics and he's mounting a rabbinic argument against their position, which is just brilliant. 
And he points to a certain hypocrisy about taking oaths. When I was a kid, we used to have um, contests uh, where you kind of dare your friend to, I don't know, there was a time when I remember um, my brothers in Calgary taught me where to find the sewer system, the, the water sewer system. And I never had the nerve to do this, but my, my older brother did. And they would walk through the water sewer system of the city and they would dare each other to put their fingers up through the hole of a manhole in the street where the traffic was going over. And uh, if you were, you, you would be dared to stick your finger up through the manhole. And <clears throat> okay, a dare is one thing, but a, but a double dog dare, woo. That means you can, you could, I mean, it's a double dog dare. So, I mean, you pretty well got to do the double dog dare, right? Or I can remember friends telling me, I'll give you $2 if you do this. And then you do it. And they would say, well, go home, find two doll hairs on your sister's doll, and they're yours. Two doll hairs, two dollars. Well, this is what the Jews were doing. They were um, playing cat and mouse with um, taking O's. And there was a perfectly good reason why they had to do it. There's a perfectly legitimate, religious, theologically sound reason why they were making these distinctions. But Jesus' point is, just whatever, you take, whatever you make as an oath before God stands. And we Christians are not even to take oaths under normal circumstances because our yes should be yes and our no should be no. So in the woes that follow, Jesus continues to address particularly Jewish issues. And there's much that we can learn from them. They have to do basically uh, with the kinds of things that we have seen in the Sermon on the Mount. Looking good on the outside, but being hypocritical on the inside. There's something within us that makes all of us want to look good before others. And we'll often do whatever we can to kind of keep that good posture. You know, you, you don't want to air your dirty laundry. You want people to think well of you. It's important to your Christian testimony and everything else. <laughs> it's rotten. You know? We should look no better on the outside than we are on the inside. My friends, your preacher is a glorified sewer rat. And he may be wearing a white collar. But inside, there are all kinds of things that... I and you continue to struggle with that are not good. And, and one of the key tenets of the Christian faith is not to look good, but to admit that you're not good and that you are a mess. And those who humble themselves are thereby exalted, and those who exalt themselves are thereby humbled. I think this brings me close to the conclusion, whether I'm aware of it or not. Yeah, what about the application? Well, one application, I think, is for Christian engagement with Jewish teachings. This is not to say that we are to look negatively upon our um, Jewish neighbors. Um, they are the chosen people, and they continue in some ways to be the chosen people. But I see here a commitment to engaging with Jewish people in evangelism. And there have to be more tactful ways for you and I to do it being sinners, then Jesus did it, who was the sinless one and who was a Jew who could enter into this inter-Jewish dialogue that was customary. But I would like to hope that we can find ways to engage with our Jewish neighbors. If you know some Jewish friends, you could phone them up and say, hey, 
what would it take for me to have you for dinner? Because there's a way to do it. Uh, you, you, you get uh, disposable dishes and disposable cutlery and have them for dinner. Not because you want to you know, uh, do anything other than show love and hospitality and invite dialogue. And I can't help but think that um, um, a well-meaning Jew, like uh, the woman whose testimony we heard about a month ago, uh, couldn't help but wonder whether the Jewish laws that they're committed to following are maybe not the right way to go. They cover the bases broadly. But Jesus is saying, I want you to go deep with the righteousness that I'm teaching you. This is addressed as well indirectly to Jewish leaders and in turn to Christian leaders. And as I think about it, it makes me wonder what we as Christian leaders do that um, can be hypocritical. Um, <laughs> I mean, you read the headlines of newspapers and um, scandals and you'll see how often that happens. I've sometimes wondered when I lead worship, I will hold up my hands and I say, well, you don't do that when you're sitting in a congregation. I think, well, am I being hypocritical? Maybe, I don't know, but I'm leading worship. So I do when I'm in front leading worship, but I don't normally do when I'm in the audience. Those are the kinds of questions maybe that we should be asking ourselves, but I think it goes a lot deeper than that. We're good people. The Jews were good people. When we play games with ourselves, and I just want to suggest two things that I thought of as a way of triggering your own thinking as you think about how to apply this. I was at a church meeting um, not long ago where uh, there was a lot of energy around uh, churchly practice, coming up with a manual about this and that so that we have our ducks in a row. And um, that's all fine, but I, I'm, I'm sure that you will probably relate to the question about whether sometimes we hold meetings and stay busy when we should be doing something else. You go to the mission field, you'll find that the mission head office often, they're busy doing meetings, they're busy praying, but isn't the point that we're supposed to be out there reaching other people? Oh yeah, let's have a meeting and talk about how we might do that. That's kind of the idea. So there are ways in which we can trick ourselves. One of the ways in which I find that I do this, and I suspect others do as well, is rather than repent over what we've done that is a mistake, we'll justify ourselves. There's something that makes us want to justify our bad behavior and they come up with reasons why we did what we did, even if that's not the reason, because we don't want to admit the fact that we, like the Pharisees, are often whitewashed tombs with dead men's bones inside. My friends, Jesus is saying, get real, keep it real and don't be hypocritical. Well, I began with a Christian story. Let me begin with, end with a Christian story that intersects with Jews indirectly. This week I was walking along College Street and um, I ran into um, um, a man who was asking for money. And um, he wanted money for cigarettes because he was um, addicted to smoking. And um, I said to him that I would be willing maybe to go and get him something from um, um, a, um, a convenience store nearby. I don't always do that, but I did it this time and we were walking and he said to me, okay, this is great, what's my limit? And I thought, well, okay, well, we're taking the guy to the convenience store. I said, $10. I can't remember when the last time my limit was that high. I mean, often it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a toonie in a, in a plate or something like that. So I went into the convenience store and he was getting his potato 
chips and stuff, and into the department of the university. I'm thinking, ooh, I'm treating somebody to a $10 treat, and the man is from the street. This has got to look pretty good, huh? So I was wondering, he hadn't noticed me, but I was sort of wanting to kind of draw attention. Hi, just about the time when the poor fellow with schizophrenia would come up and say, hey, thanks, buddy, for the $10 treat. You can understand that, at least I can. And as I thought about it, I thought, you know, this is kind of weird. Like, I don't do this very often, at least never, almost never to this extent. But he was his friend, and it would be really nice if he would come to the cash register at the same time that you were paying money for the poor homeless person. Well, of course, Jesus wants none of that. And the whole point of us putting it on for show is contrary to what Jesus is saying. Go deep with the kingdom righteousness and keep it to yourself and keep it real. And that's what will distinguish us from others. Amen.